Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 17. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? So we're continuing our series uh, through the book of Revelation. We find ourselves now at the end of chapter six uh, through this just mysterious, mesmerizing chapter, uh, chapter six and seven actually, uh, about the seven seals in Revelation, right? So uh, this afternoon, what we're going to be looking at and talking about mostly is the persecuted church. The persecuted church. Now, what does it mean to be persecuted? It means to, to endure or receive like hostility, right? To be treated badly, maybe even violently because of what you believe. And how many of us would say that we enjoy that, right? Like, no one would say that they enjoy that. Not a single person would say that. Like, nobody says, persecution, sign me up, right? I, I want to be persecuted. No one says that. Yet the Bible tells us that persecution is part of our calling as Christians. If you truly belong to Christ, that means that you're dead to your old ways, you're born again to new life, which means that you are now a light in a dark place. It means that you bring mending to a broken world. And because of this, you might find yourself persecuted by a world that is comfortable with, with sin and darkness and even hopelessness. So then, how do, we, how do we handle that? How do we handle that? What do we do with the fact that we, even right now, have brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are being persecuted to the fullest extent. They're getting martyred and killed for their faith. We're followers. As Christians, we are followers of a persecuted Messiah. Jesus himself, he was hated. He was criticized. He was murdered because of the gospel that he came to bring. And so there should be no surprise then that as we who follow him might, might find ourselves at times persecuted too. And so that brings us to our passage in Revelation 6. 
Uh, again, it begins with the opening of the seven seals. And with each seal, we get a clearer picture of God's purpose for us in the world. Uh, as we mentioned last week, these seals are not phases of history. They don't happen one after the other after the other, right? The reason that it has the number seven is because the number seven is the number of completeness. It's the number of wholeness. And so the seven seals give us the complete picture of what God has in store for the world until Jesus returns. Last week, we looked at the first four seals, uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and we saw that God will use various judgments on the world to both destroy his enemy, his enemies, but also to strengthen our faith. And this afternoon, we're going to look at the fifth and sixth seal that follow that up. I'll give you the big idea on the front end. The big idea of our text is that followers of Jesus Christ will be persecuted throughout history, but they will one day be vindicated by Jesus. Followers of Christ will be persecuted throughout history. That's the tension that we got to deal with. But the good news is that they will one day be vindicated by Jesus. And so let's look at that, starting with point number one. I only have two points for you this afternoon. Point number one, the fifth seal, where we see the martyrs cry out. The martyrs cry out. Read verse 9 with me. It says, when, when Jesus opened the fifth seal, remember John is having a vision here. And he says, when Jesus opened the fifth seal, he says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So John is receiving this vision. Remember, like in, in Revelation, he's, he's been exiled to this, to this island. He's receiving this vision from God. And this vision has all kinds of symbols. It has all kinds of imagery. John saw the throne room of heaven in Revelations 4 and 5, but he ends up weeping because he's like, oh, look, there's this scroll that symbolizes God's plan for the world, God's plan to fix all that is wrong with the world, but nobody could open the scroll, and so John's weeping. He's like, what hope do we have? What hope does the world have for all of our brokenness? And then he receives this good news. When, he, when he's told that there's one who's worthy to open the scroll, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus takes the scroll and he opens the seals one by one. And here he is at the fifth seal. And what we see in verse 9 is this vision that of all the souls of believers who've been persecuted gathering around the throne of God. This is happening, this is happening between the ascension of Jesus and the second coming, all right? And so this vision that John has seen of all these martyrs that have been slain, this, this vision that he sees is, is, is this, this image of martyrs that are, are throughout church history from the time that Jesus ascended until the time that Jesus is about to return, which is basically the time when the gospel goes out to the nations and the world. And the reality, the reality that we see from verse 9 is that all throughout history, people from every time, every tongue, every nation will come to place their faith in Christ, to love him and worship him as God. But 
all those amazing things, all those conversions won't happen without difficulty. They won't come to pass without a cost. There will be persecutions. There will be martyrdom. In fact, just hours before Jesus was arrested, before he was beaten and murdered on the cross, right after the Last Supper that he shared with his disciples, Jesus gave final instructions to those disciples. And in his final instructions, he starts by encouraging them he talks about how, how, how they should abide in him, and he will abide in them as a faithful and loving friend to build them up, to help them to be fruitful and bring in glory to God and good to others in the everyday stuff of life. He starts encouraging them and just normal Christian stuff that we like to talk about. But then there's this point when his tone sort of changes, and he sobers up. He gets somber. You can almost hear like the sigh in his breath going, you know, and then he begins to, to tell his disciples that the world will hate them. He says the world will, will hate his followers just as they've hated him. We read about this in John 15, verses 18 through 20. Jesus sits down with his disciples and he tells them, if the world hates you, <coughs> no that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, that a servant is not greater than his master, so if they persecuted me, he says, they will also persecute you. Jesus says that persecution will come simply because we're just trying to live according to the scriptures. Simply because we love God. Simply because we're pursuing God and just trying to live according to the scriptures out of our love for God, we're going to be persecuted. Like when we live that way, our lives confront the patterns of this world. When we live that way, our lives will offend the wisdom of this world. Have you ever like noticed that happen in your own life? I mean, it's, it's a bummer when it happens, right? It, it saddens you, it grieves you, and it should sadden and grieve you when that happens. That's simply because you love God, simply because you're, you're trying to just grow in loving the things of God, sometimes we're met with hostility, strange looks. Some examples might include, you know, like how Maybe like as you, as you grow in your faith, you, you, don't, you don't laugh as much at, at the same jokes as you did before, right? Like I see this happen amongst, uh, uh, amongst men, right? Like, like, like when all the guys, uh, married guys that are like off to a corner, they'll start talking to one another and, and, and this main conversation happens where like they're all just talking trash on their wives, or like sometimes the ladies will get together and they're just all talking trash on, on their husbands, and then suddenly you find yourself just growing in holiness. And you hear, you hear the boys making, making fun of their wives. And, and, and suddenly you find yourself saying, like, like, like I, don't know, I, I don't find that funny. And so you don't laugh. Or maybe you get up and walk away. And everyone's like, look at this guy. What, does he cherish his wife, right? <laughs> That's how it should be. Or like 
how just our, your belief in Jesus is the way to eternal life. Like, that offends a lot of people. Rather than seeing how inclusive that invitation is, a lot of people, they want to focus on how exclusive it is, and they, and they feel that it's hateful. Or how maybe you've asked friends or family to plan things on Saturday because you want to make sure that you're worshiping with your church family on the Lord's Day. Or you try and, and, and move your, your uh, social availability around, like with your neighbors and your, and your, and your various friends groups, uh, to, to make sure that it's not coming up against like, uh, like your home group commitments. And, and people are like, that's weird. What do you mean you have this Bible study, right? And it's like you do any of these things and then just, just out of a pure desire, a genuine desire just to love God and, and to love the things of God. And then eventually you see that, that, that sometimes it makes other people uncomfortable. Why does that happen? It, it happens because your life at times is suddenly confronting their patterns and practices which come from worldly wisdom and not heavenly wisdom. And so it shouldn't be a surprise that sometimes we're met with hostility as believers. Now, I do want to be clear about something, about the fact that some people have this like persecution mentality, all right? You have this persecution mentality where they see persecution in like any hard thing, right? Any hard thing that gets imposed on them, they're like, oh, that's persecution, like last year when houses of worship were, were closed last year um, because of, you know, everything that happened last year. And so when houses of worship closed last year, there were a lot of people that are like, oh, they're persecuting the churches. They're, it's because they don't like Christ. It's like, dude, no, all houses of worship couldn't meet. That wasn't a Christian thing. That was a, and man, there's a debate to be had about like the preference that they would give to certain kinds of businesses over houses of worship. And that's a valid, that's a valid conversation to have, but that's not persecution for your faith. Right? This persecution mentality. Or there are others who would consider persecution as sort of like this badge of honor. Let's say, and they'd look for opportunities to be persecuted, right? It's like that annoying kid that goes up to their sibling and is like, ah, oh, you can't hit me, you know, like, you can't hit me, you can't hit me, and all of a sudden they get, like, pushed or, or, or hit by their sibling, and they're like, mom, you hit me, right? Like some people are just so self-righteous, so holier than thou, that they, they look at the sinners on, on their street, and they say things like, ah, like, oh, the reason that they don't invite us over is because they know where we stand, Right? They know the things that we're into, and so they, they, they know where we stand. I mean, maybe that's why they don't invite you over, or maybe it's just because you like being a jerk in the name of Jesus. And that doesn't help anyone. I mean, this is the kind of person who would probably, like, hate on Jesus for sharing a meal with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors, which he did. Look, it's one thing to be persecuted for like authentically following Jesus to where you're seeking to love God and love your neighbor but you get misunderstood because your, your, your ways of thinking are just coming from very different places so it's one thing to be persecuted for authentically following Jesus but it's another thing to be persecuted for just flaunting your own self-righteousness and it takes humility 
and wisdom to recognize the difference between doing the one or the other. All right? Just want to make that little caveat clear. What we're talking about is real persecution for authentically seeking to follow Jesus. And by the way, the apostles in the first century, the apostles who, who sat at the feet of Jesus during his earthly ministry and learned from him, the apostles who wrote uh, the, just the, the entirety of the, the New Testament, most of them did, they were persecuted for their faithfulness around this time that, that John was writing this letter. In the years following, uh, they were being persecuted for their faith, many of them to the fullest extent, to where they were killed and martyred for their faith in Jesus. I want to just give you a few examples, starting with the first New Testament martyr that we actually read about his story in the Bible. In Acts chapter 6, we read about Stephen. Stephen, who was a deacon that was preaching the gospel to a group of people, and because he was preaching the gospel and the people didn't like the gospel that he was preaching, uh, they, they, they called him a heretic. They stoned him for preaching the gospel. And with his final breath, he starts praying for the salvation of everyone who's standing around mocking him and throwing rocks at him. Which, by the way, that group included the Apostle Paul before his conversion. They stoned Stephen to death. And it, we're told that somewhere around 2,000 Christians died shortly after. Like he was the first of many martyrs in that time. They killed Stephen, and then they just said, like, hey, that was fun. Like, let's go for more. Almost two, up to 2,000 died shortly after. Philip, another disciple, he was whipped, imprisoned, and crucified. Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew, was murdered with a long-handled axe, James, who was the half-brother of Jesus and the author of the book of James, at 94 years old, 94 years old, he was thrown from a temple roof, at the pinnacle of a temple. They threw him from the temple roof, and when he didn't die from that, they started stoning him. They just started throwing rocks at him. He was resilient, and he still didn't even die from getting stoned. Like, there was... there's. A couple people who started stoning him, and then when they saw his old, frail body getting beaten up, they had compassion on him, and so some of them tried to stop it until one of the other guys got, got so fed up that these guys were trying to stop it that he just walked over to James's frail, old body and beat his head in with a club, neganed him. Matthias, the guy who, who replaced the apostle Judas, was stoned and beheaded. John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, was dragged behind a horse, then torn to pieces by a mob on Easter Sunday of 68 AD. Thomas, who many of you know is Doubting Thomas, the one who, who doubted that Jesus really rose from the grave and, and, until he stuck his finger in Jesus' side. Thomas was maimed by a spear himself. Peter, famous Peter, the one who, who, who you know, kept sticking his foot in his mouth throughout the Gospels, Peter who wrote uh, 1 and 2 Peter, he was crucified. And he said he wanted to be crucified upside down because he felt unworthy to die right, the, the right side up just the way that Jesus did. 
He was like, I'm worthy to be crucified that way, so crucify me upside down. Andrew, who is Peter's brother, was also crucified, but because it took a few days for him to die while he was hanging on the cross, he preached the gospel to those that gathered at the foot of his cross. There was another James, who is the brother of John, who preached the gospel to a local governor, Herod Agrippa, before he was murdered. While he was like on trial, he, he preached the gospel to Herod Agrippa. That Herod, that governor, actually came to faith. He came to faith. And you know what happened? The authorities took both men, both James and the governor, and beheaded them together. And then you have John. John, the apostle, John who wrote the Gospel of John, John who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, John who wrote the book of Revelation. He was actually the only one of the disciples who wasn't martyred and killed for his faith. But they certainly tried. He certainly was persecuted. They tried to martyr him. They actually boiled him alive in a vat of oil. And somehow, miraculously, he didn't die from that. And so they actually sent him away. They exiled him on Patmos, which is the island that he's on, where he receives this vision from God and begins writing this mesmerizing book of Revelation. He would eventually die like in his 90s, covered in warts and scars from, and infections from his, his boiling. I don't know, what do you call that? And look, from that first century on, countless people were criticized, persecuted, martyred for their faith in the risen Jesus Christ. And so how do we make sense of this? What are we to make of this injustice, right? I mean, it, and we need, to, we need to really just like reckon with the fact that this that this happens, and that Jesus said this is going to happen. And he said to varying degrees, like, you might not get martyred for your faith, but Jesus says you will get persecuted if you're a follower of me to some degree or another. Look, in America, we've been so coddled by our comforts, by our conveniences, by our privileges, in suburban Christianity, we've taught ourselves that following Jesus only brings good blessings to our lives, which following Jesus does bring, but it doesn't only bring that. It also brings persecution. It also brings hard things, as Jesus says. And to many throughout time and to many around the world, even today, you get persecuted to the point of death. So back to John's vision, you see that persecution is real. And these souls who were persecuted to the point of death, to the point to where they were slain for their faith, as verse 9 says. It's real. Martyrdom is real. And John sees the souls of history's martyrs gathering and growing under the altar in God's throne. And these souls are crying out. Look what they're crying out in verse 10. It says, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And 
Look, that's a fair and honest question. Right? That's a fair and honest question for these people, these souls who have been slain for their faith to ask, how much longer will this go on? One of the things I love about the Bible is, is how honest it is about our most unsettling inquiries that we have. If so many times in the scriptures, especially in the Psalms, where the psalmist is saying, how long, O oh Lord, does this have to go on? How long must I feel like you're far away, like you're not listening? How long must my prayers go unanswered? I mean, some, some of us, like, we assume that we're the only ones who, who think that way, who talk that way. But no, we see these questions in the scriptures. I want you to notice how they address him, how they address Jesus as sovereign Lord. They say, oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true. What they're acknowledging there is they're saying, look, God, you're the sovereign one. You're the one who's in control over all things. Nothing happens outside your realm of dominion. And so how much longer are you going to let this happen? How much longer will you let this go on before you avenge us? Where people on earth killed us for our faith in you, killed our families for our faith in you, when are you going to do something about it? How much longer will you tarry? When will you avenge us? What they're crying for is justice. And man, every single one of us, we long for justice, right? Like any time that you've, you've ever asked, like, God, why do these things happen? Why do bad things happen to nice people, to good families? Why do people die? Why do people get cancer? Why do people have disease? Like, why, why is there injustice in this world? Why are people oppressed? What we're crying for when we pray those prayers is what these souls are crying for at the foot of the altar, is they're crying for justice. And God's answer to them in verse 11 might surprise you. In verse 11, it says, Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. This is referring to those who were to be killed as they themselves had been. That's unsettling, right? Verse 11, he says, they each were given a white robe to rest a little longer, and then, and then they're you know, basically told by Jesus, like, hey, just, just wait longer. Be patient, because there's other brothers and sisters who are going to be killed for their faith, just like you have been. And their number hasn't been completed yet. Like, what in the world? Like, how do you understand his response? They're saying, how much longer, sovereign one? And God says, there's some believers who are going to be martyred just like you were, and I'm waiting for them to be martyred first. And then I'll make it right. I mean, be honest. Like, how does that land for you? How does that land for you? That's unsettling, right? Like, why wouldn't a good and sovereign, all-powerful God say, you're right, enough. 
Enough with the martyring. Enough with the injustice. I'll destroy those who've persecuted my children so it won't happen anymore. I mean, today, up to this day, up to the 21st century, millions upon millions upon millions of martyrs have been killed by now. Why doesn't God stop it once and for all if he's sovereign, if he's holy, if he's good, if he's true? Why doesn't he stop us from being persecuted in this life? Look, the truth is, in some sense, we don't fully know the answer to that question. Could be that we go through these things so that our strength can be, or our faith, rather, can be strengthened. Right, that's what James 1 talks about. You go through trials, you go through hardship, so your faith is strengthened. It could be for these martyrs that for them to die for Christ is gain, right? As Paul says, to die for Christ yields heavenly rewards, as 2 Timothy 4 says. And so it could be that the, the hardship that they go through on their, on their small little lifespan, the fact that they died for Christ will yield like unending treasures and glories and pleasures forevermore. But if there's one thing that the book of Revelation teaches us, It's that the world does not revolve around us. If there's one thing the book of Revelation teaches us, that the world doesn't revolve around us. It's about a holy God and his plan for history. The question that we should be asking is, where do we fit in that plan? Colossians 1.16 says, For by him, speaking of Jesus, by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Was it say some things were created through him and for him? No, all things. All things were created through him and for him. Look, the truth is, and I admit, like, our minds are probably too small and finite to fully understand God's infinite wisdom in this. But the truth is that if God sees fit to allow us to suffer, to bring him glory, then so be it. So be it. He's God. He's God and I'm not. It's about a holy God and how he brings all things together for his glory in the end. And that doesn't make him a megalomaniac. A megalomaniac is somebody who, who puts himself at the center of the universe and has a higher esteem of themselves than they really ought to. But when you're talking about God, the one from whom all things came, the one who holds all creation together and working just perfectly with the sheer volition of his will within the span of his hands. When you're talking about a God that big and that perfect and that amazing, man, to not have him at the center of the universe, to not have him see, receive the fullness of glory and praise and worship, would be the very definition of evil. 
would be the very definition of what's wrong and unjust. God brings all things together for his glory in the end, and that's a good thing, and it is just mind-blowing. It should be just mind-blowing that we even get to play a part in his story. The first century Christians that were receiving this letter, this book of Revelation, they would have found great purpose in reading these words. They would have even found great comfort in reading these words. You see, in the first century, persecution was allowed, but it wasn't legal, right? Like, they just kind of, like, turned their eyes the other way when Christians were getting persecuted. But by the year 250 AD, it was not only illegal, but it was also widespread. Christians were being killed all the time. And so at the time that Christians were receiving this letter of the book of Revelation for the first time, At that time, to be a Christian was a huge risk to your life. It was a huge risk to your family. But that also made it a test of what you treasured more. Do you treasure more the things of this world or the things of Christ, which last forever? What verse 11 there told us is that above martyrdom, above even martyrdom, is a sovereign God who says there's an appointed number of martyrs and every single one of them, every single one of them, their life matters. Every single one of them did not die for Christ in vain. Every single one of them has an important role to play in spreading the gospel and planting churches and in bolstering the faith of those around them. Satan is constantly saying, accusing God, saying that people only serve you. Satan's constantly saying, we read about this in the book of Job, that Satan is constantly saying, people only serve you because of how you make their life better. And the faithful martyrs throughout history play a special role in shutting his filthy mouth. Listen, the fact that there are martyrs at all is not an accident. The fact that there are martyrs at all is not an accident. God is not surprised by that. He's not taken off guard that some of Jesus' followers die for their faith. It might look like defeat from an earthly vantage point, but from the throne room of heaven, we see it. It's just part of this mysteriously good plan, this mysteriously perfect plan that no human being would ever come up with. This sovereign plan will bring victory to all who endure to the end by God's amazing grace. And look, I do want you to notice that God, even with that unsettling response from our earthly perspective, he still didn't leave them hanging Look again to verse 1 when it says that they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Now, at face value, that seems a little out of touch, right? They're like, how long, Lord? When will you avenge us? And Jesus gives them a robe. Like, 
Thanks, big bro. <laughs> what am I going to do with this? But you got to remember in Revelation, in the book of Revelation, colors have meanings. And almost everything, all these pictures and symbols uh, are, are typically a symbol and picture of a, of a greater truth that is being unveiled, revealed to us. The white robe is a symbol in the scriptures of victory. So imagine this, like you're, you're, you're the soul of a martyr, right? At the, at, at the, below the, before the altar of the throne of God. And you're like, God, like, we've been, we've been defeated. Well, I feel like we lost. Like, when are you going to do something about this? And they're given the mark of a victor, the mark of a champion. They're given a white robe, a symbol of victory, and also a symbol of faithful purity. In other words, it's God's way of telling them, look, while you wait, while you wait for the second coming of Jesus, when he will finally judge those who martyr God's people, when he will finally right every wrong, when he will finally put an, an end to sin, evil, Satan, and death, while you wait for the second coming, know that the victory of that second coming is already yours right now. It's already yours today. And know that your faithfulness will be duly rewarded. You see, they must rest. These souls must rest and wait until all of God's elect, those chosen to be his children before the foundation of the world have been gathered. God knows who are his. And he knows the exact number of people who will die for the faith. He's never one step out of sync with his sovereign purposes for the world. He's so not out of sync that he knows the exact number. And he says every single one of those lives counts and makes a difference. You see, he takes what we might interpret as defeat and unsettling, and he turns it on its head so that we see victory in a God who's worthy to be praised. Look, this truth, this truth that we're talking about, about the, the, the hope of martyrdom, emboldened the hope of a martyr who was beheaded last year. You guys might remember this. It was in the news. A man by the name of Lawan Andimi was uh, beheaded last year. It was all around the news. He was beheaded by Boko Haram last year. And in his, in his video that uh, his, his captor, captors uh, uh, recorded of him, which you can look up on YouTube, he knows that he's likely going to be beheaded for the faith. And Lawan Andimi, he's, he's a pastor of a small church. They captured him. They tried to get them to recant of his faith. He would refuse to. And they send this video out to like all the local authorities. It ends up being shared around the world. And at the end of this video, he says, I have never been discouraged because all my 
because all conditions one finds himself in is in the hand of God. If the opportunity for my release is not granted, perhaps it is the will of God. And then he comforts his family and his colleagues at the end, and he says, don't cry, don't worry, but thank God for everything. Just moments before he loses his head for being a follower of the risen Jesus. How could he have such hope? How could he have such hope? It's because he's read this book. He knows that the souls of the martyrs, like him, that are gathered at the foot of the altar in the throne of God, the souls that cry out, how much longer? That God says, here's your white robe. You're already a champion. You're already a victor. You are faithful and pure because of what your life means for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know what happened after uh, Luan Andimi was, was uh, martyred? Man, the church locally, by seeing his example, willing to die for his faith, it was like emboldened. Disciples made disciples that made disciples. Some of their enemies converted to faith. And the church blew up. That's the kind of God that we have. Something that from our earthly vantage point should look like defeat ends up being a win for the kingdom. And a man who lost his head in front of a camera, who his captors uh, probably looked at him as insignificant and worthless, just a casualty of their cause. He's a king of sorts in the kingdom. And he knew that. And this leads us into our second point. We'll go through this quickly. The sixth seal, where we see that the world cries out. The world cries out. Verses 12 through 14, it says, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. What these verses tell us is that there is a day of judgment coming when God in his power will right every wrong and that all that has gone wrong will be undone. He will shake the world and everyone in it. This is that he'll move mountains. He'll darken the sun. The moon will turn to blood. Stars will fall from heaven. Now, again, every single one of these are just symbols, Right? They're symbols that are meant to terrify the reader. And the point of them is to say that one day, the fearsome judge of the universe, the risen Jesus Christ, will judge the world. And all earthly powers, all earthly rulers, all earthly movements will be completely overthrown. None of them will matter anymore. Why does that matter? 
Why does that matter that every authority on earth and in hell will be flattened? It matters because this will be the end to every totalitarian dictator. It'll be the end to every terrorist regime, to every corrupt politician, to every oppressive government, to every unethical or heavy-handed employer or business owner, to every enslaving pimp and sex trafficker, to every false prophet, to every narcissistic pastor and the cults that they lead, to every, to every enemy of the gospel that has martyred and killed others for their faith in Jesus Christ, all of them will come to an end. They'll all quake in their boots and try to hide from the Lamb of God. See, the key figure at the center of this whole scenario is the Lamb of God. Verse 15 through 17, the, the next verses describe people of all classes crying out. Read verse 15 to 17 with me. They're just the end of the chapter. It says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who? can stand. Who can stand on the day of wrath before the Lamb of God? You see, these hardened humans throughout the world and throughout time have been rebelling against God and persecuting his people. But here, with the opening of the sixth seal, we see that as bold as they were, chopping off heads, martyring believers in the faith, as bold as they were in that moment, here in verses 15 through 17, they can't even look in the face of the lamb that was slain. They say, hide us. You see, on that day, on that final day, when Jesus returns, there will be no such thing as status or human power. It's not going to matter where you live. It's not going to matter what job you have. It's not going to matter how many followers you influence. It doesn't matter how many people you have under your thumb. On that day, it's just going to be God and mankind. Holy, sinless, perfect God and sinful creatures. Man, you want to know where you end up on that day. The wrath of the Lamb is terrifying to those who have rejected him and rejected his love. Nothing is more scary and frightening than the perfect, holy love of God turned against you. And that's what the final judgment will bring. The opportunity to receive the perfect, gracious, holy love of God 
that opportunity will turn itself from you on the final day. As Psalm 130 reminds us, we read in our assurance of grace, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, which is a way of saying, if you, God, could mark every way that we've wronged against you, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. And this is interesting. It says that you may be feared. You see, it's an understanding the weight of the judgment that you deserve and having a healthy fear of God by knowing that. It's by understanding the weight of God's holy judgment that should be against you but isn't because of the mercy of Christ. It's in that that we can truly understand forgiveness and a healthy fear of the Lord, where you recognize both your place and his. This lamb, the lamb of God, is the same lamb that came 2,000 years ago. God loves this world so much that he sent his son, the lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And one day he will eliminate all evil, All evil out there, once and for all, he'll eliminate it. But until then, until then, brothers and sisters, he came to eliminate the powers of evil and sin from here. So we wait for that day. We wait for that day that he will vanquish all evil out there. Until then, we run to him so that he can vanquish that evil in here. Every single one of us deserves to receive the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus doesn't merely deflect the wrath from us. He absorbed it in our behalf. He's not like the Lamb who hit the wrath out of the park, deflected it away from us. No, he's a lamb that was slain. He absorbed God's wrath on our behalf. He's a lamb of God who slaughtered on the cross as a sacrifice of our sins. And for those who don't know him, whether you're here in this room or streaming online, for those who don't know him, Our invitation to you is just to repent and believe. Repent and believe. Admit that you're a sinner and receive the free grace of Jesus. For those of us that do know him, that do know the lamb, I invite you to say, praise be to the lamb of God. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.